Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Chapter 11 of England and the Hundred Years' War by Charles William Chadwick Ullman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Henry VI, The Minority, and the French War, 1422-1450. The death of Henry V was followed in a few weeks by that of his imbecile father-in-law, Charles VI, October 21st. Thus the crowns of England and France both fell, according to the provisions of the Treaty of Troyes, to the sickly child Henry of Windsor. It might have been expected that the domination of the English across the Channel would disappear, when the strong personality of the conqueror was removed, and the power which he had wielded passed into many hands. But the Dauphin Charles, the King of Bourges, as men now called him, was both unpopular and apathetic. His counsellors and captains were incapable, and they could make no profit out of the opportunity which was offered them. As long as the young Duke of Burgundy remembered his father's murder and remained the ally of the English, the Nationalist Party was unable to make any head against the invaders. Henry V had left two surviving brothers. John, Duke of Bedford, the elder of the pair, was made Regent of France, an office which he discharged with great energy and ability, doing his best to carry on the war with very inadequate resources and conciliating Philip of Burgundy to the best of his power. To bind him yet more closely to the English alliance, John wedded the Duke's sister, the Princess Anne. Humphrey of Gloucester was a very different character from his steady and hard-working brother. He was flighty, petulant, quarrelsome, and selfish, though his affable manners, his patronage of learned men, and his cultivation of all the arts of popularity won him the name of the good Duke Humphrey from his numerous partisans. Gloucester had been regent of England at his brother's death, but the lords of the council and the parliament feared his reckless ambition so much that they would only allow him to continue in power under many restrictions. Instead of regent, they made him only protector of the realm and the king's chief counsellor, and he was to act in all things with the consent of a council of regency composed of fifteen members. The chief opponent of the duke was his half-uncle Henry Beaufort. Bishop of Winchester, an able and obstinate man who thoroughly distrusted his nephew. The majority of the council generally backed the bishop, and Gloucester spent much of his time in fruitless bickerings with them. It is most astonishing to find that the death of Henry V was not followed by any shrinkage of the English possessions in northern France. On the contrary, the area of the region which acknowledged his little son as king continued slowly to increase for more than six years. Bedford was zealous and untiring in his exertions, 
and though help was doled out to him from England with a very sparing hand, he contrived to keep up the war to a great extent by the use of French money and French mercenaries. Twice the Dauphinois strove to break into the provinces of the English obedience, but they suffered two bloody defeats at Cavan, July 31, 1423, and Verneuil, August 17, 1424. In the second of these fights fell the Earl of Douglas and nearly all the Dauphin's Scottish auxiliaries. Further aid from Scotland was hard to get, for the English government had just released and restored to his kingdom the long-imprisoned King James I. That prince had married an English wife, Joan Beaufort, the bishop's niece, and adopted a policy of consistent friendliness to his southern neighbors. The first danger to the English dominion in France came from a freak of Humphrey of Gloucester. He provoked the Duke of Burgundy to great wrath by marrying Philip's cousin, Jacqueline, Countess of Holland and Hainault, who had absconded from her lawful husband, the Duke of Brabant. Obtaining for her a divorce of more than doubtful validity from the anti-pope, Benedict XIII, the Duke wedded her and tried to make himself master of her heritage in Hainault. Burgundy had no desire to see Gloucester established as a neighbor of his county of Flanders and joined John of Brabant in overrunning Hainault. He might even have broken away from the English alliance if he had not been turned aside by the soft words of his brother-in-law Bedford. Gloucester, meanwhile, proved himself an indifferent champion of his wife's claims. He fled back to England, while she fell into the hands of Duke Philip and was thrown into prison. Instead of pursuing the quarrel further, Humphrey very meanly acknowledged that his marriage had been invalid, and consoled himself by marrying Eleanor Cobham, a Kentish lady who had taken his fickle fancy, 1427. After escaping the dangers to which his reckless brother's conduct had exposed him, Bedford was ere long to be confronted by a far more formidable difficulty. Slowly pushing his operations southward, he arrived at the gates of Orléans, the last French stronghold north of the Loire. To besiege this important strategical point, the whole available field army of the regent was sent forward under the Earl of Salisbury, the son of Richard II's Lollard friend. So limited, however, were the resources of the English that the expedition did not exceed 4,000 men. Yet weak as was the attack, the defense was weaker still, and Salisbury was able to blockade the place by erecting a number of forts, Bastille, as they were called, watching all its gates, he was unable with his inadequate numbers to erect a complete line of circumvallation. The French made several feeble attempts to save Orléans, of which the best known was that foiled at the Battle of Herrings. A small reinforcement from Paris, guarding a convoy largely composed of salt fish and other Lenten stuff, was attacked near Rouvray by the Dauphin's forces, but parked its wagons in a square and easily beat off the French by the force of archery, February 12, 1429. Nevertheless, Orléans held out stoutly, and Salisbury soon after was killed by a cannonball as he was reconnoitering its walls. After the Battle of Herrings, Charles seemed to have resigned himself to the prospect of losing Orléans. But in the early spring of 1429, a new factor appeared in the war, and the fortune of the English at last began to wane. 
patriotic hearts all over france were deeply stirred by the fact that for fifteen years a foreign enemy had been able to overrun and plunder the whole land owing to the bitter civil strife which divided its inhabitants into two hostile camps the english were insignificant in numbers and could not for a moment have maintained themselves but for the fact that a disloyal french faction gave them active aid while the apathetic majority stood aside and allowed the dauphinois and the burgundians to fight out their disreputable blood feud to a miserable end meanwhile the countryside lay desolate the towns were sinking into decay and the land groaned for a deliverer from the interminable war help came from an unexpected quarter jeanne d'arc a young country girl from domremy on the borders of lorraine had been from her youth a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions while her mind was brooding over the misery of her country she was visited by a series of ecstatic trances in which she believed that her patron saints the virgin saint michel and saint catherine appeared to her and bade her save france by preaching unity to all frenchmen and setting them an example of vigorous action after some doubting she set out to seek the dauphin's court at chinon and presented herself before the apathetic prince bidding him bestir himself and drive out the english by means of the divine aid which she brought him her visions promised her that she should relieve orleans and lead charles de reims there to crown him king convinced by some secret token which jeanne revealed to him or perhaps moved only by motives of policy the dauphin gave his sanction to her mission and sent her forth with an expedition which was about to attempt to succour the beleaguered garrison of orleans she assumed knightly armour girt on a sword which was said to have been discovered by a miracle in the church of st catherine at firbois and bore a white banner the french leaders were at first inclined to treat her as a mere impostor or fanatic but the soldiery eagerly accepted her as an emissary of heaven and went forth with a confidence which they had not shown since agincourt she entered orleans in safety april thirtieth and then led a series of sorties against the english forts which lay around it heading the storming parties in person such was the enthusiasm with which the garrison followed her that her enterprises were successful and the besiegers seeing their line broken were compelled to raise the leaguer and retire into their nearest strongholds jargot and beaugency rapidly following them up jeanne captured both places and then defeated in the open field at pate june eighteenth the wrecks of the beaten army strengthened by a reinforcement from paris under lord talbot this series of astonishing successes gave the french the confidence which they had so long lacked while the english amazed at defeats which they could not understand declared that jeanne was a witch and an emissary of the devil before her day wrote a contemporary chronicler two hundred english would drive five hundred french before them but now two hundred french would beat and chase four hundred english for the future the offensive was always taken by the dauphin's troops and the invaders could only fight on the defensive after the victory of pate the maid escorted charles to reims as she had promised and there saw him crowned king of france july seventeenth fourteen twenty nine after this triumph she begged leave to withdraw home 
but her presence was considered too valuable and she was begged to stay with the army yielding to the request she then advised an instant attack on paris it was carried out but with such slackness and mismanagement that it failed joan herself was wounded as she urged on the troops to the storm and her prestige suffered somewhat from the repulse but meanwhile Saint-Lys, beauvais laon and soissons surrendered to the new king and as a result of jeanne's appearance all champagne and most of the ile de france had been abandoned by the english even their hold on paris and normandy had been shaken next spring the maid again took the field though her ungrateful master sent her forth with a very inadequate force at her back she declared herself that her career was nearing its end but persevered gallantly in the task which she had undertaken after some small successes she threw herself into compiegne which was being beleaguered by a burgundian army leading a sally of the garrison to beat up the besiegers camp she was unhorsed and taken prisoner philip of burgundy sold her to the english for ten thousand crowns and she was led into captivity the regent bedford was always reckoned a just and wise prince but in this case he shamefully belied his reputation he had no mercy for the limb of the devil as he called the unfortunate jeanne she was for some time held in bonds and subjected to cruel maltreatment in order to induce her to declare that her mission was not from god persevering in her belief to the end she shamed her keepers by her courage and piety at last bedford commissioned the bishop of beauvais to proceed against her as a witch after a formal trial before a french ecclesiastical court she was condemned and burnt to ashes at rouen on may thirtieth fourteen thirty one charles the seventh was only less guilty than the english in this black business he made no effort whatever to rescue his saviour though he had in his hands lord talbot and many other english prisoners and could have stopped jeanne's persecution at any moment by threatening to retaliate on his captives any judgment that might be passed on her the maid died unavenged but the movement which she had set on foot did not die with her she had destroyed the self-confidence which had made the english almost invincible she had also stirred up the heart of the french nation and taught them to forget their wretched factions and feuds from the moment of her appearance the burgundian partisans of the english began one by one to drop off and to make their peace with charles the seventh in spite of all his faults they saw that he represented the cause of french independence and that it was a sin to fight against him in the ranks of the invader bedford did his best to struggle against fate and his military talents availed for some years to stem the tide but he felt himself that he was only postponing the inevitable the fatal blow was struck when at last philip of burgundy consented to forget his father's murder and to make peace with the murderer at the congress of arras he threw up his long alliance with england and reconciled himself to charles september tenth fourteen thirty five four days later the regent john of bedford died at rouen worn out by his long campaigning for twelve years he had hardly been given a moment's rest and he saw that the ruin of the cause which he had so long maintained was at hand 
Bedford had not been buried seven months when Paris, the last refuge of the English in central France, fell into the hands of the enemy. The burghers, once such hot partisans of Burgundy and England, opened the gates to the besiegers, and Lord Willoughby with his small garrison had to fly in haste, April 1436. Nothing was left now to the English but their old foothold in the Duchy of Guienne around the ever-loyal Bordeaux, and in the north, Normandy, and part of Maine. It is therefore most extraordinary to find that in these limited regions they were able to maintain themselves for no less than sixteen years more. The chief heroes of this last and most hopeless stage of the Hundred Years' War were John Lord Talbot and Richard Duke of York. The latter was the son of that Richard Earl of Cambridge who had conspired against Henry V in 1415. He had succeeded to the Duchy of York when a young boy on the death of his childless uncle, Duke Edmund, at Agincourt. But he became a much more important personage in 1425 when his other uncle, Edmund Mortimer, Earl of March, died and left him his heir. Through his mother, Anne Mortimer, Richard now represented the eldest line of Edward III's descendants. He was twice appointed to the command in France and held it from 1435 to 1437, and again from 1441 to 1445. He kept a tight hold on Normandy, beating off assault after assault upon the duchy, and often pushing raids almost to the gates of Paris. He even recovered from the French in 1437 the important fortress of Pontoise, one of the keys of the Seine, and it was maintained until 1441, being four times relieved and reprovisioned by the indefatigable Talbot. When York was recalled from France in 1445 and replaced by Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, a commander of much lower stamp, the power of resistance of the English in Normandy seemed to collapse, and place after place began to fall into the hands of the enemy. Meanwhile, the internal affairs of England present little that is of importance. A long struggle went on between Humphrey of Gloucester, representing the extreme war party, and Beaufort, now a cardinal, who led those who were in favor of coming to an agreement with France, and sacrificing the untenable claim to the French throne in return for some territorial concessions. Gloucester gradually lost ground, more especially after 1441, when his wife, Eleanor Cobham, was prosecuted for using sorcery to compass the king's death, and rightly or wrongly condemned to imprisonment for life. Her husband made no attempt to defend her, but whether from cowardice or from consciousness that she was guilty, it is impossible to tell. The temporary discredit of the war party led to serious negotiations with France in 1444. The king had now attained his majority, and men trusted that a new era would commence when he took over the conduct of affairs from the hands of the council. He himself was set on peace, and it was hoped that the agreement might be sealed by his marriage with a French princess. Unfortunately, however, the son of the heroic Henry V and the grandson of the politic Henry IV turned out to be the weakest sovereign that ever sat upon the English throne. A gentle, pious, incapable young man, he was full of good wishes, but lacked the strength to put them into practice. He was so modest and diffident, 
that he was always ready to defer to the opinion of the nearest adviser, but the next person that had his ear could as easily turn him from his first purpose. One unfortunate heritage from his ancestors showed itself in him long ere he reached middle age, a touch of the melancholy madness of his grandfather, Charles VI of France. When it fell upon him, he had to be placed in retirement, and the cloud did not pass from his brain for many months. He was entirely well-meaning, and his people loved his pious and simple character, but they were at the same time driven to despair by the hopeless incapacity which he showed for affairs of state. Usually he was merely the mouthpiece of those behind the throne. The full extent of Henry's weakness was not yet known, when in 1444 he allowed his minister, William de la Pole, Earl of Suffolk, a partisan of Cardinal Beaufort, to sign the Truce of Tours. By this agreement the English retained their foothold about Bordeaux and in the Duchy of Normandy, but gave up their fortresses and men and other outlying regions. At the same time the king received the hand of Margaret of Anjou, a cousin of Charles the Seventh, daughter of René, Duke of Anjou, and titular king of Naples. The terms which Suffolk had obtained were very unfavorable. In return for the ceded strongholds, England should have got something more than an uncertain truce and a dowerless bride for her king. When the details of the truce of Tours were divulged, Gloucester again raised his head and began to clamor against the cession of men. He found plenty of support from the enemies of Suffolk and the Beauforts, and was able to make himself most unpleasant to the young queen. Margaret was a woman of strong passions and considerable ability, who soon learned how to domineer over her meek husband, and was quite reckless in using her power. She threw herself vehemently into English politics as an enemy of Gloucester and his party, and started her career in England as the leader of a faction. At the Parliament of Berry, February 1447, she and Suffolk concocted a coup d'état against Humphrey. He was seized and thrown into prison, where he at once died. There were strong suspicions of foul play, but it seems more likely that apoplexy, caused by a fit of passion, carried off the duke. His old rival, Cardinal Beaufort, who had retired from politics a few years before, only survived him for five weeks. The government of the realm now passed for a space into the hands of Suffolk, the Queen, and Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, who used the king's name at their pleasure. The leadership of the opposition, on the other hand, had devolved on Richard, Duke of York, a far more able man than Duke Humphrey. He had never forgiven the way in which his career in Normandy had been brought to an end by his being superseded by Somerset. At all costs, the ministry should have endeavored to turn the truce with France into a permanent peace. But they were unable to do so, and what was worse, could not keep their own troops in Normandy in order. A disgraceful raid into Brittany by some mutinous bands whom Somerset had left unpaid gave the French an excuse for renewing the war, March 1449. The best testimony to the incapacity of the English government was the extraordinary rapidity with which Normandy was lost. In less than a year, Somerset had been driven out of the duchy which York and Talbot had so long maintained against all the strength of France. 
a small army of relief sent over from southampton was cut to pieces at the battle of forigny april fifteenth fourteen fifty and four months later cherbourg the last fortress held by england lowered its flag nothing now remained to england in northern france save the single stronghold of calais the outburst of wrath which followed somerset's disgraceful loss of normandy marks the opening of a new period in english history civil strife was about to be added to foreign war and the wars of the roses were close at hand End of chapter 11thank you for listening to this episode of all things plantagenet remember we also have a website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources as well as the other episodes thank you for listening and have a great day